Thank you for joining First Fairgate United Methodist Church's podcast. This week, we continue on with our What's So Amazing About Grace series. And now here's Martha with our message. No one could ever accuse Paul of running short on words. Paul likes to use a lot of words. He likes to use a lot of big words, justified, righteousness, redemption, atonement. Sometimes when I read Paul, I just want to say, would you just say what it is you're trying to say and be done with it? Because Paul has a tendency to talk with a lot of words. But the reality is it is difficult to describe God's grace in just a few words because it is so lavish, so magnificent. We started a series last week, just a three-week, a short three-week series, talking about what's so amazing about grace. We started last week looking at this concept that we call prevenient grace. And we used the story of the Apostle Paul to talk about prevenient grace. The beautiful thing about our our Wesleyan, meaning from John Wesley's understanding of grace in, in the United Methodist Church, is that grace is not just a noun, it's a verb. It's God's action, God's, God's work, God's power in action. And when we started last week talking about this idea of prevenient grace, we talked about the grace that goes before. The grace that draws us to God before we ever even realize it's God, before perhaps we've ever even heard the name of Jesus, that God's grace is working around us, through other people, actually even in us. We use the story of Paul to describe how God's grace worked in Paul even when Paul was still out on a murderous rampage trying to persecute, imprison, and potentially even kill Christians. God came to Paul on that road to Damascus, we call it, and and the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, knocked him blind, blinded by the light. He hears a voice speak to him, and Paul encounters Jesus. Now, we know the rest of the story that Paul ended up giving us basically the rest of the New Testament and the the bulk of the New Testament, for that matter. But the question is, did Paul have a choice? If standing in the face of such amazing grace, such blinding light, did Paul have a choice? Could he have continued in the way that he was living and persecuting Christians? Or could he have moved forward? Prevenient grace works in that way to draw us in, but at some point we have to make a decision. It's sort of like when you're in a a budding relationship. Now some of you may have to think way far back for this. But we all know what it's like when you meet someone and you get the butterflies in the, in the stomach and the sky is suddenly bluer and the sun shines brighter and you walk around this silly grin all over your face and everything's wonderful. But at some point, you have to make a decision. Are you going to move forward or are you going to walk away? Now, you could try to stay there in that, in that um, area. Good luck. You can try. But at some point, you have to make a decision. That's where Paul was, and that's where justifying grace, our next category of grace, comes into play. 
Justifying grace is that period, that moment of time where we come face to face with a choice. Did Paul have a choice? The short answer is yes, he did. But the longer answer is in the face of such incredible, powerful, lavish, unimaginably magnificent grace, could he have turned away? As the writer of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, writes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." To that point, when Paul encountered this blinding light and was knocked to his knees, to that point, Paul thought he was doing the work of God. Paul thought he was doing, working on God's behalf, And his pursuit of that blinded him from the grace of God. But when faced with that, he became convinced that he himself was in a desperate need of healing. Which is what he means when he writes in our Roman scripture this morning that no human being is justified in God's sight by the law and that righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. Paul is referring, when he uses the word the law, to some 613 rules, what we call laws, in the Old Testament. If you are looking to read the Bible, I highly recommend you not start with the book of Leviticus. However, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, I recommend you start with the book of Leviticus. I don't mean to say that, not, that, that there's a part of the, of the Bible that's not important, it's all important, but in Leviticus what we have is excruciating detail of all the prescribed offerings and sacrifices that were to atone, which means to cover or appease any sin that was committed. There were grain offerings, fruit offerings, wine offerings, crops, lambs, doves, you name it, 613 of them. For every wrong that a person could have committed, there was a coinciding offering or sacrifice. It sounds a little strange to us in our world because we realize it's just grain, it's just an animal. What does all this have to do with anything? But the whole system created a mentality that all a person had to do was offer the prescribed sacrifice or offer the prescribed, bring the prescribed offering follow the rules, and they could be made right with God. And Paul knew those laws and followed them, no pun intended, religiously. But suddenly, face to face, with the grace of God, Paul realized that that system was futile. That all the law would ever do was remind a person that he or she would never measure up. Paul suddenly realizes that doesn't really do anything. Now let's fast forward to the 21st century and look at this in terms of what we call the law today. Now today, when we talk about law, we're talking about some some, um, rules that have been posed upon us by government or social or political agencies that are designed to keep us safe. They're designed to keep us some semblance of law and order in our world. For example... There's this thing called a speed limit. I have a healthy respect for the speed limit. 
But my healthy respect for the speed limit has nothing to do with my desire to do a good thing. Has nothing to do with my desire to obey the law. It has everything to do with the fact that I don't like that feeling you get in your stomach when you see those pretty blue lights behind you. If you've never had that feeling, let me know. I can describe that for you in vivid detail. But my respect for the speed limit, it can make me abide by the law because I don't want a ticket. I don't want insurance premiums to go up. So the law of the speed limit can make me abide by it. But it cannot change my motivation to drive fast. Very fast. What Paul realized is that all these laws cannot change the inside. They cannot make a person be right, which is what righteousness means, with God. He realized that this law cannot heal a person's heart, cannot wash away the shame and the guilt, cannot change the motivation, cannot make a person right with God. Only Jesus can do that. Which is where this concept of justifying grace comes into play. Paul wrote that we are justified by grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Only through the faithfulness of Jesus' willingness to sacrifice himself once and for all are we made right. Not made better than others. Not made suddenly sinless and virtuous and, and never do anything wrong in our lives again. That's not what it means. It just means a relationship has been set right. Paul uses this word redemption that quite frankly is, is, a, is a simple word for us. But we often think of it in terms of we take a coupon into the store and we redeem that to get something. Or we uh, mail-in rebate or something of, the, of that nature. But redemption in Scripture means to literally buy back. To take back at a high price something that has been taken from us or from a person. It's a hard concept for us to understand, but there is a beautiful, beautiful story in the Old Testament that explains, that paints a picture for us what Jesus did for us. It's a beautiful story found in what we call the minor prophet Hosea. It's a story of Hosea and Gomer. Go ahead and laugh at the name and get it out of the way. Hosea and Gomer offer us a picture of what Jesus did. Hosea was a prophet who was called to preach to the people, not only with words, not only with a message given to them, he was called to preach to them with his whole life. He was called to preach with action. Hosea, the holy man prophet, was called to be a living example of God's love. God told Hosea, go marry a prostitute. So against all the sideways glances, the rumors, the gossip, the wondering, what is Mr. Holy Man doing here? He goes and he finds a woman of ill repute. And they get married. They get married. They have three children. It looks like there's the nice white picket fence everywhere. Life is good. But that wasn't quite their story. Because Gomer decided to go back to her old ways. 
It started simply enough with adultery. And then it began to go down a slippery slope. And further and further she went. Hosea went after her, tried to protect her and pursue her from all of this. But she sunk further and further and further until one day she ends up for sale. She's no longer the beautiful wife. She's probably worn out, malnourished, dirty, and she's for sale. Hosea hears of this, and he has a choice. He's well within his rights to say, uh, this was her choosing. I tried. She chose to walk away. She abandoned me. She abandoned the kids. She's on her own. But God comes to Hosea and he says to him, go get her. Hosea goes down to, just imagine, the city center auction block. And he says, I want to buy her back. And he pays three times the cost for the going rate of that sort of slave. Three times the cost to bring her back home. To restore her into a right relationship. That metaphor of Hosea and Gomer gives us a beautiful illustration of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. By his death on the cross, Jesus metaphorically went to the auction block and declared, you are mine. And I will pay whatever it takes to bring you home. It's that act that makes God's justifying grace work. Yes, God brings us to a point that we see his grace working. We begin to realize, as Paul did, maybe some blinding light. It's probably something a lot more subtle for us. But at some point, God's grace works within us to help us make the decision to accept what God has already done. Jesus says, I will buy you back. It doesn't stop there. I dare say Gomer went home that night and the conversation around the dinner table was probably a little strained at best. We'll talk about what happens after that moment next week. But there's a moment on the cross that Jesus says, I will buy you back. And we have a choice to make. Why is it for us to remember what God has done for us? because it's easy for us to forget. Oftentimes, we don't subscribe to the offerings and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. That's, that's old news. We don't do that. But what we do do is wonder if what we've done or said or not done takes away what God did for us. Nothing takes that away. That's why it's important for us to remember that while we are great sinners, Christ is an even greater Savior. God's amazing grace 
is what restores us to relationship with God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week as we discuss sanctifying grace, grace that works within us throughout our entire journey of being a follower of Jesus. See you next week.